My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that our government is shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. Like, oh, here we go, Mark. Off again with your... Mark being Mark again. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that's the thing about podcasts is when you're on the air, and it's like therapy, you know? If I can't talk to my family about this stuff, I'll talk to you, Matt, and all our listeners. Yeah. So who are we talking about today, Matt? September 11th, 2001, the largest terror attack in human history or the largest false flag hoax ever perpetuated on the world. I have met several survivors and eyewitnesses, all who have stories that do not corroborate the official story. And today's guest has spent almost two decades showing the inaccuracies of the official story while exposing the synchronicities that lead us to see it was an inside job. Richard Grove joins us for the first time. Me, Mystic Mark, here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Thank you for listening and enjoy this episode with Richard Grove. It's a beautiful, kind of cloudless, sunny fall morning. It was awesome. Until I got down below Canal Street and I got to a red light and the traffic is stopped and the light turns green and the traffic doesn't move. I'm like, something's going on. And I'm look, looking up ahead to see if like, is there construction? And then I hear the cab next to me has got the AM 1010 winds news station on blaring. And there's like, there's been, you know, something going on at the World Trade Center. And then I looked up and there's smoke coming out of the floors where I would have been in 20 minutes, right? So. I didn't know what floor specifically the fire was at, but I knew that Cantor Fitzgerald was above Marsha McLennan and I counted the floors down. I'm like, that looks like the plane, whatever whatever hit, whatever caused that, whatever exploded, looked like it was in Marsha McLennan. And then 1010 wins when I turned the station on in my car, because I don't usually, I was listening to a CD, I wasn't listening to the radio, so I had to get to that station. And they say like a, a Cessna has hit, like a small, pat, like a small, like, uh, you know, Cessna or one of those little single engine planes. So like a small private aircraft has hit the Trade Center, it's an accident. And so I, the, the first two news reports were like, it's an accident. So I'm like, okay, when are the fire department gonna get here? Because the fire department wasn't there. I didn't see firemen the whole time I was there. And you'll, I'll tell you when I leave in a second. So there's black smoke pouring out of the building. There's no firemen there. And I'm like, okay, so some of the people have been there before when, the, you know, it was bombed in 1993 and they got, you know, stairwells. And I'm just picturing like there's fire systems in there, like, psh, you know, extinguishing the fire and then firemen are going to get here. They're going to go up and save people, right? 
So I'm just hoping that the people I was working with are going to be okay and everyone else in the building, right? Because it's an accident. It's just like a fire in a building, right? So at some point I turn left on a busy street, busy street, and I'm kind of like rubbernecking and traffic is moving very slowly. And I'm looking like over my right shoulder up at North Tower because it's like where all the action's going on. And then the South Tower explodes. And at that point, I'm between World Trade Center 6 and World Trade Center 7. And then I see flashes go off in the building next to me at the same time the South Tower exploded. First and foremost, how, how you been? I've been good and been really productive this summer and seeing what's going on out there with prices and whatnot. It's like you can watch it and be a deer in the headlights or you can see what's coming and step up your activity and make hay while the sun shines. <laughs> yeah, so I've been busier in between seasons of autonomy. It's a training course I teach twice a year. So like summer is the time off, but it's busier in between sessions than it is during the session. So by September, I'll be able to take a deep breath. I said a couple of weeks ago before we went to New Hampshire for the Porcupine Freedom Festival, I said, I feel like once I like do the next couple actions, like hook up this trailer to the truck, I'm just going to be working until September and then I can take a break when I start teaching again. So it's been busy. So to introduce myself, my name is Richard Grove. I currently host a podcast called Grand Theft World. It's at grandtheftworld.com. I'm known because I, I've been here 16 years publishing media. So I've had three podcasts now. My first one was 9-11 Synchronicity. That's where you would get the deeper background information on my story, my publications, what I noticed, what the research was that backs it up. And then in between is I did 10 years of the Peace Revolution podcast, which helps people understand and comprehend and digest and articulate the history that's driving the history that we see today. So the current events we see today has a long history. You don't have to go back thousands of years to really get it. But if you know the history of America since it started, plus a couple other things, you can get a really good angle on, oh, there's a group of people. They're irrational, kind of socio-psychopaths. They are driven by greed and pragmatism, and they seem kind of soulless in their actions, right? And there's a bunch of other people who are being preyed upon, and they're sending their kids to school and university, and they're working hard at their nine to five jobs, and never the twain shall mate. You, you would never have that group of people realize there's a group of people behind the government or above the government, rather, that's manipulating and kind of forging our future ahead of us without our input, which to me is a, a system of slavery that whole sort of situation where they're designing the next several decades and what the world's going to be like without the input of the people. So it's a small group of people. You can call them oligarchs or globalists or new world order or, you know, any number of names, but they're people who don't believe in individual rights. They don't believe in a non-aggression principle. They don't believe in private property rights. I mean, they believe in it for themselves, of course, right? They held libertarian type of ideals, but for the masses, it's population control. So they want to use communism, socialism, cartel capitalism is kind of what we live under right now. And so I've spent since, you know, 2006 publishing, and I spent four years prior to that really researching before I published anything. And I mean, the long short of it is I went to public school. I went to university to get a business degree. <laughs> took me five years and getting in debt to get that business degree. And with that degree, I was not qualified to run a business, let alone probably work at a business because that degree was not based on logic and reason and surviving and thriving as a business person, right? What it does is train you to how to go into a corporate environment and kind of crawl your way through from the bottom up 
And maybe someday you get like a retirement package and a pension, though that's not been a thing for like a couple decades now. So the training system for these corporations hasn't changed, but the outcomes of the training systems have. It used to be to get a good good degree or get good a good to get a good job, you needed to have a college degree. And it was like this impassable barrier. But I can't, I mean, we've hired a lot of people over the years, and I can't tell you the last time I asked somebody, what's your degree? It's about what are your skills? What can you offer? What are you bringing to value for clients or people around you? And if you don't have those skills, how to build them. So I had the opportunity in college. I was looking for bar specials, dude. I was reading the school newspaper, looking for a bar special that night. And I saw an ad that said, make 10 grand this summer. And I thought, well, what do you got to do to make 10 grand? I sweat my ass off all summer to make three grand back then. Right. What do you got to do to make three times plus that money? Right. So it turns out it was a sales pitch for a franchise system that teaches you entrepreneurism, how to run your own business. And I invested in that when I was in college, I invested $5,000 in myself and I got this skill set, and I got a business that goes with it. Right. And I thrived in that business for a couple of years. I sold it off to my brother because my brother and his buddies were working for me. And when I didn't need it anymore, I sold it to them. And then I went into the corporate world and this is like 1997, 98. And I went into high tech sales. So the, the world was data, like mainframes and databases that did not talk to each other, didn't have access to the internet. It was all kind of like siloed, right? Separated from each other. Mm. And the internet allowed these companies to like put everything online and do this whole new thing that they had never thought before. So I wasn't working in like dot-com software type stuff, but I was working in the traditional here's how to like database modeling tools. So here's how to take your database and visualize it so you can manage it better, right? Or I worked for a couple like object oriented tool companies to help you visualize technology. I worked for an AI company. I worked for a company that was supposed to keep companies safe from fraud. And then I found out how to backdoor in the software and that's when I became a whistleblower. And the in-between time, so I, I became indispensable at any of the companies I worked at I blew out my quotas, which means let's say they say you got to close $2 million for the quarter or whatever. I would do one and a half, two, three, sometimes four times the quota. So in sales, I was good at solving problems. You're only dealing with people with needs. You have a product or a service. If you can do the job, cool. If not, recommend them to where they can get the job done. Right. So to me, it was good, honest work. It was well paying. It was a lot of fun. And you know, I was on that, that, that ride for a couple of years and I found myself living in New York and like, I don't know, living the dream as they would say. Right. I, I was making enough money. I could, I had a lot of freedom. I had a nice apartment. I had good cars. I had easy work to do these sort of things. Right. It wasn't like backbreaking work. I was good at it. And sales is just solving problems and relationship building and building up trust over time by taking steps with integrity, right? It's something we should all learn in high school, but they don't want us to know because it's too empowering. So call it a cushy life, however you want to say it. You're the person who's make, it's high stress because you're the person making everyone else's paychecks in the company work, right? So if I work at a company of 300 people and we got a team of 30 salespeople, the 30 salespeople are bringing in enough money to pay for those 300 people's salaries, benefits, packages, retire, all the other stuff that comes with it, right? So sales can be very lucrative. It can be very exciting. 
It can be very rewarding, but it can also be very high stress depending on where you're working and what quality product or service you're dealing with, right? So by the time we get to like 2001, I'm working at, like I said, a 300 person company. It was called Silverstream. It was just had gone public before I started working there. And one of like, I, it, the, it, the product I was selling was like five grand, right? So average deal for this company might be 10 grand because they have some $50,000 deals, but you do a lot of single deals at five grand. So they wanted to grow and I helped them find what they would refer to like in the business as a whale, a big client, a big client with a big need. And therefore the solution would have a high ticket price, right? And so this client was called Marsh and McLennan Companies. It's a conglomerate. It has many companies under its umbrella. It's a global company started in the United States, but it's kind of an Anglo-American company. And they're in the reinsurance business. They're the world's largest reinsurance brokerage. And so it's insurance on insurance. Does that make sense, Mark? Yeah, it's sort of that's on bets. Yeah, it's it's very deeply connected to our local area. The whole insurance industry was designed around, you know, insuring people's not just military ventures, but shipping ventures and things like that, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, and then the CEO of Marsha McLennan was a guy named Jeff Greenberg, and his dad ran another insurance company called AIG. His name was Hank Greenberg. Hank Greenberg, once upon a time, was nominated to be the director of CIA. And AIG had the world's largest private air force at the time of like 9-11. <clears throat> it had been accused of participating in narco trafficking with the CIA by Mike Rupert and a number of other investigators. And AIG legitimately had its start with the OSS, the nascent CIA group back then. The guy who founded AIG was Cornelius V. Starr, who was an OSS agent. And there was a great article it's called The Secret Insurance Agent Men. I think it was LA Times. And they break down. So that I didn't know the history of these companies. To me, Marsha McLennan was like, you know, here's a client. It's going to be a million dollar deal, a global site license. It'll be 5 million in services. It's going to be a big deal to my employer. That's a good thing for me as a salesperson, right? That's what you hope to do if you do your job correctly is bring in a lot of work at once like that and make it more efficient, right? And then because of that deal, Silverstream ended up getting purchased by Novell. So it got gobbled up, I think a year or two after 9-11 probably. So Marsha McLennan, my biggest client, my company's biggest client, their headquarters is 1666 Avenue of the Americas. But they had probably 10 floors or eight floors in the North Tower of the World Trade Center. My client, the aspect, the IT aspect, all the computers, they're in the North Tower. And we got like 20 or 30 contractors working on this deal. So I've got an office that I share with the consultants. And I'm there a couple of days a week, kind of overseeing the deal, make sure things go on. Everything's going to spec. They hope to launch in July 2001, that summer. So I spent the whole winter from October 2000 through June 2001 building up that account, making sure that the project was going well, all these great things. So we got to the point where we could see the end of the tunnel with the project. And this is like around, let's say June 5th. And they were planning, they had already been planning phase two. And I got an approval that they would go ahead with phase two in relation to my vendor's software packaging, right? And so that deal was going to be, phase two of the marsh.com deal was going to be $5 million approximately in software and another 5 million probably in services. So it's like a $10 million deal. I get paid 
And as a salesperson, I was hoping, thinking, praying, had worked toward and earned that was going to be a million dollar commission check for the work that I put in on that account. So that's June 5th. I get that, that notice from the CIO at Marsh. I write to my team. I'm like, hey, we close this deal. And oh, by the way, I also wrote another email that night saying there's like $5 million on this Marsh deal that Silverstream has billed to Marsh that we haven't been paid on. And what's up with that, right? And I listed all these timesheets and all these people working. Tuesday morning, I go into work naively thinking like, it's going to be a great day. Like I just closed the biggest deal in company history. It should be like a good day. So I walk into my office, I'm making coffee. My manager comes into my office and says, come down to my office. I thought this is weird because you're already in my office. But yeah, I walked down the hall. Now this is in, this is a Midtown. The Silverstream office was in Midtown. So it's like Madison Avenue. And I go down to my boss's office. I follow him into his office. And behind me, his boss, I don't see him. Someone closes the door. I turn around. I see my boss's boss who had flown in from Boston just to say, Rich, today is not your lucky day. We're letting you go. And I was like, what, what, what? Record scratch. I was like, I just brought in a whole boatload of money. And now, and they're like, basically after like talking to them for a half hour and 45 minutes, they're like, we're just going to take your money. We're just going to take that. Thanks for playing. And you know, you're getting burned basically. So, oh, right. <laughs> yeah. And, and I should interject oh, wait, and your, say your audio, your audio is a little overdriven there, but it uh, sounds clear at the end. Go try again. Yeah. Hold on. I did. I am doing something that I don't normally do, which is recording in two different places. Maybe there's Positive. feedback. Does it fix now? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Let me just flag that. So I know how to edit that out. I do want to interject real quick and, and say, you know, Richard, you are like contrary and complimentary to me in many ways. We both grew up. I, I assume you grew up in Connecticut. I know you live there now. I so. grew up in Western Pennsylvania in the woods. Right. Okay. Never mind. You've told me that plenty of times. Okay. So never mind. But you're familiar enough with Connecticut. And the only reason I say that is because, you know, my family, they've always criticized my views and I think that if I had, you know, you as an example to show them like, hey, this guy worked at Madison Avenue. This guy, you know, is, you know, using your own words, part of a culture of excellence and strives to not only have intelligent thoughts, but back those thoughts up with sources and, and you cite your sources. So, yeah, I just want to point that out for the the listening audience that it that it is you know really cool to have someone with your credentials that normies can appreciate and you have you're like a bridge is is what i mean to say yeah like as a normie i got a kick-ass resume if you are a ceo or cfo or chairman of the board and you see my resume you're like get him in for a meeting we're not hiring salespeople, but we'll hire him because i can make it rain I have processes and methods and I had really good training and mentoring in the nineties when I learned this stuff. So let me just zip back to when I was trying to pay for college and work in odd jobs. And I got the entrepreneurial franchise and ran that for a couple of years. It is there that I would be trained with other super upwardly mobile individuals on accountability, weekly accountability, goal structure, accountability. How are you, what are the numbers you're going to crank out to make this happen? The definition of integrity, doing what you said you'd do when you said you'd do it, culture of excellence, all these things that I'm teaching today. Like I learned them myself. And then I went into the market with that specific skill set, not my degree, 
The places I worked never asked for my degree. They knew I had one, but it wasn't necessary to show up for the job. I closed business for those companies. And you, you know, when you see the money come in, it doesn't matter if you got the piece of paper on the wall or not. So I right. used that exact skill set. I invested five grand in myself. I put it to work for like five or six years and I earned a million dollars with that skill set. Now, soon thereafter, I hit this glass ceiling where integrity only carries you so far. And if you don't play along with the game at hand, then you can become a whistleblower, lose your career, become persona non grata, get your credit pulled out from under you, have collectors and all sorts of things be sicked on you because the corporate infrastructure, it's your friend is until you're not wanting to participate with it anymore. And then it kind of becomes your enemy. So I learned the hard way, a whole bunch of steps in the future years, but this is June, 2001. And it was the first of three incidents that happened over the next couple of years that really got me to say, I'm not going to give my my talent, my intellect, my ingenuity, my problem-solving capabilities, my rhetorical skills to these Fortune 100, 500 companies that are trying to destroy humanity. Instead, I'm going to read some books. I'm going to get a better map that reflects the terrain. I'm going to learn about what's going on. So when I make moves in the future, I can get predictable, repeatable results out of it because you can't do that as long as you think, I got a degree and I got the, the you know good paycheck and salary and package. And that's, is, that only works until they decide to drop you. And then what do you do then? Do you know how to float? Do you know how to swim? Do you know how to bake, make a boat? Do you know how to make oars and go in a direction toward a goal and make it to island? And do you, can you make shelter for yourself and survive? This is just like the rudimentary metaphor before you even get into more expensive things like plumbing. It's like, can you just keep yourself out of the elements, make fire and find food? Most people can't. And if they don't have a job and a terrarium to provide that for them, they're lost. So it's a very limiting position. What I'm talking about are skills and aptitudes, methods, principles, strategies, and tactics that allow you to like can opener that situation up, experience freedom and go wherever you want to go and figure out how to be self Reliant, self-propelling, like propelling, not waiting for the wind to come and carry you someplace by hope or luck, but by saying, oh, I have a goal. Here's the actions I need to take. Here's the resources I need to call upon. I have some. I need to find some of the others. Here's the other steps I need to take during a week. And by the end of the week, I can put a dent in this, if not accomplish that goal. And then doing that systematically, right? I learned all that from the, the franchise, not from high school, not from five years at university and all that debt. Mm. I learned it, the, you know, I would call it the hard way. But I'm also, it was lucky to have all that hard work. It builds character. It gives you good work. I already had good work ethic, but it made me work smarter, right. not harder. And that, that's right. probably why I keep mistaking you for being a New Englander, because we have that cliche of having the Yankee work ethic, which I know my family would certainly appreciate. My cousin was a state champion wrestler, and he now works for... IBM. And, and when I talk to you, I hear his voice in my head because you're just very similar. Maybe it's because we've met before, but I do sort of feel that familial connection. So Richard, I did interject at a sort of important point and I, I'm sorry to take us off track, but you were describing, you know, the sort of glass ceiling that you hit and integrity only takes you so far. But there was a moment where you were sort of synchronistically or serendipitously, you know, relieved of your duties. And it happened to be a few months prior to that event I was alluding to, one that all of us know about now, but you couldn't have had any idea about, I assume, back then. But what were your thoughts when you got fired? You were like, what the hell am I going to do now? Obviously, you know, this event was looming in the future. What was that like? It was an expensive lesson to learn. But since they did that, 
I didn't have to continue to maintain a relationship with that client. And without the relationship, they never really got that deal. And the people that I worked with that were working like, you know, 16 hours a day in the trade centers, they got pulled from that project because Marsh never went to phase two. They stopped at the launch of phase one. So all those people over the summer, they don't have to be there anymore, right? So by September 11th, there was no Silverstream people in the building for several months before that, right? So that's all well and good. Those people that the dudes that try to steal my money, I mean, they work with gangsters. I mean, it was a hard, it was a learn. It was, Ill, it was an illuminating lesson for me to see like, you know, their line of thinking, like the guy who did it to me, the guy who hid behind the door, I'd taken him on several trips to London to like keep him in the loop on the biggest client. They like, he has nothing to hand. Like he came in late. They hired him from Duke energy. So I already had the client I already had the relationship. I was already closed on the deal and they brought him in to kind of like manage my manager. Right. Hmm. And uh, so I was like, dude, we've like gone to dinner and like, we've entertained clients. We've traveled like you. And then he's, just, uh, you know, anyway, good learning lesson. There's an age gap there. And like older people are sometimes desperate because they don't need, they don't know how to meet their needs without taking away the younger person's stuff. Does that make sense? And oh yeah. It's a predatory swimming with sharks environment. And it's like, so my attitude was aside from like feeling like I lost that commission check. Cause that was an ego thing. Like, Oh, to be able to say I got a million dollar commission check one time. Right. Like I'd already earned a million. Mm. I spent, spend it just as fast as I earned it though. So it's not like I was rolling in dough. I could spend money really fast. I, I read all the magazines and saw the advertisements growing up. I know what I was supposed to do with money. I had, there was no shortage of places that would accept my money. Like you just spend it, right? I wasn't taught to invest in real estate or do anything smart with it. I wasn't taught how to budget. I thought I have a skill set. I'm cranking it and it's going to keep coming. So that was the first interruption in the cash flow. But I had lots of money in the bank at that point, probably, you know, six figures. So I didn't look for a job right away. And that brings us to like August of 2001. I had, it's like three weeks into August. I'd gone to a wedding in Boston. My former employer is based out of Boston. I'm at the wedding. I go to the hotel room. I'm by myself and I get this pain between my waist and my chin. I couldn't tell you where it was, dude, but it was the worst pain I'd ever had. So I ended up going to the hospital. Hospital takes like two days to figure out, three days to figure out that my gallbladder is about to explode. Then they need to do emergency surgery. So my former employer, as soon as I get out of the hospital, they come to me with an offer, which I thought was weird, but I was on some painkillers. So I was like, Hey, what's going on? And they're like, Hey, your Cobra insurance is about to run out. And we noticed you were just in the hospital and we would like to extend your insurance and pay you $9,999. And all you got to do is sign here. And I was like, all right. And then a couple of days later, I was like, what is, what is that? That seems like a bribe. Why is 9,000? What what's that big deal with the number? $1 more and they have to tell the board of directors. So this was the CFO of the company coming to me with this contract. So $1 more, he's got to explain himself to the board of directors. Why are you giving this guy you already fired another 10 grand? What's going on? Why are you extending his health insurance? Right? Anyway. So I started asking questions and I went back to what was the last email I sent? I'd asked these questions about this $5 million and people not getting paid. And it looked like funny business. The client didn't need that stuff. What was going on? Are they just like laundering money? I don't know. I don't know. So I, a week or so later, I'm just recovered. I'm off the painkillers. I got a buddy who's worked at two jobs with me in sales and he's in New York city and he's at a new job called Alto web. And he's there with the VP of sales. 
And he's like, Hey, we don't have a New York sales rep. Why don't you come to dinner? Or he's like, better yet, tell us like where we meet you at dinner. He's like, you live here. Tell us where we should meet. So I told him, let's go to windows on the world. So this is September 7th or whatever the Friday is before 9-11. Okay. So it's like me and my buddy, Brian and his boss, Chris, and we go and we have dinner and I get a job offer during dinner while we're having martinis. And so I'm supposed to fly out the next week to San Francisco to Silicon Valley. And, you know, I was probably feeling good. So I use the house phone and I left a message for the secretary downstairs, who was my original contact at Marshall McLennan, Norma Taddy. I said, Norma, you know, I got these documents. I think they're going to be letting go a whole bunch of people that are working on the Lotus notes and like the legacy software. Cause they're not going to, that's what the plan seemed to be. Right. So I just want these people to have these documents so they can push back on this new guy that came in. That's basically cutting them all loose. And so I got a message back on Monday to drop off these documents the next morning, which is Tuesday. Well, Tuesday, I'm supposed to go to my buddy's beach house. It's the last week of the summer that they have it. Cause it was like one, like the second week in September, they had it to or whatever. So I'm supposed to be going over, over to Red Bank Tuesday morning. But I'm like, you know what? I can just, instead of driving out, because I lived on 87th and Riverside. And normally I just use the Lincoln Tunnel and I don't ever use the Holland Tunnel. But that morning I was like, I can drive down to the trade centers. I can drop off these documents. I can head out through the Holland Tunnel. I can get over there and be there before they even get there, right? So I'm planning, I got flip-flops, shorts, t-shirt. I'm driving down to the World Trade Center on that Tuesday morning. I'm in a Porsche 911 convertible, top down. It's a beautiful, kind of cloudless, sunny fall morning. It was awesome. Until I got down below Canal Street and I got to a red light and the traffic is stopped and the light turns green and the traffic doesn't move. I'm like, something's going on. And I'm look, looking up ahead to see if like, is there construction? And then I hear the cab next to me has got the AM 1010 winds news station on blaring. And there's like, there's been, you know, something going on at the world trade center. And then I looked up and there's smoke coming out of the floors where I would have been in 20 minutes. Right. So I didn't, I didn't know what floor specifically the fire was at, but I knew that Cantor Fitzgerald was above Marsha McLennan. And I counted the floors down. Like that looks like the plane, whatever, whatever hit, whatever caused that, whatever exploded looked like it was in Marsha McLennan. And then 1010 10 winds when I turned the station on in my car, because I don't usually, I was listening to a CD. I wasn't listening to the radio. So I had to get to that station. And they say like a, a Cessna has hit like a small pat, like a small, like, uh, what do they call it? Like a private plane, like a, you know, Cessna or one of those little, you know, mm. single engine planes. So like a small private aircraft has hit the trade center. It's an accident. I was like, oh, I can believe that. Cause I used to look down from the office and you'd see planes flying down the Hudson. And they fly like, you know, a thousand feet or 800 feet. Same with the helicopters. There's a heliport near there. So you could look down and see these things. And so I, the, the first two news reports were like, it's an accident. So I'm like, okay, when are the fire department going to get here? Because the fire department wasn't there. I didn't see firemen the whole time I was there. And you'll, I'll tell you when I leave in a second. So there's black smoke pouring out of the building. There's no firemen there. And I'm like, okay, so the, some of the people have been there before when the, you know, it was bombed in 1993, 
and they got, you know, stairwells and I'm just picturing like there's fire systems in there, like, you know, extinguishing the fire and then firemen are going to get here. They're going to go up and save people. Right. So I'm just hoping that the people I was working with are going to be okay. And everyone else in the building, right. Cause it's an accident, it's just like a fire in a building. Right. So at some point I turn left on a busy street, busy street, and I'm kind of like rubbernecking and traffic is moving very slowly. And I'm looking like over my right shoulder up at North tower. Cause it's like where all the action's going on. And then the South tower explodes. And at that point I'm between world trade center six and world trade center seven. And then I see flashes go off in the building next to me at the same time, the South tower exploded. And I was like, this is not an accident. When you see coordinated events and I panicked and I got out of there and I drove right out of the Holland tunnel and I drove South in Jersey and I, called my buddies that were supposed to meet me at Red Bank and they weren't even awake yet. So I drove all the way down to my one buddy's place. I, you know, I used to work with them and played high school hockey with them and stuff and woke him up. And by the time I got him in front of the TV, cause he's like trying to get me to explain what's going on. I'm like, I can't like, I can't even explain what's going on. By the time I got to the TV, it wasn't too long before the South tower fell. And I was like, this doesn't make sense. And then the North tower fell. I was like, that doesn't make sense either. And to this day, the, the whole thing still, I have more questions than answers. What I can say is from working there and being in the lobby and taking the elevators up, all this good stuff, right? The damage in the lobby cannot be done from the way they said it was done. Like there's, the lobby's blown out, dude. And they're like, well, the plane hit at the top and the fireball shot down the elevator shaft. And like, do you know there's two sky lobbies and those elevators don't even connect to the ground? Now, what's your explanation? Right. So these little things that you have from just working there, familiar, each floor in that building was one square acre of rebar reinforced concrete. Those 200 floors, 200 acres in total between the two two towers, they dissipate into dust and rubble in about 20 seconds total. There's a lot of energy that it's, that takes to take all that rebar concrete and turn it into dust and rubble. So it's, from a physics standpoint, I can't account for the energy, the output, given the energy, the input, even with the potential energy of a standing structure that tall. Yeah. Now, before we go too much further into the, the details uh, of yeah. the explosion and all the implications of, you know, what you know, as someone who knew that building intimately, at least more intimately than the average person who'd never worked there, right? Or never visited it. But you, what was the rest of your experience like that day? Because me, I was in fourth grade. I remember they took us and I, you know, I grew up in Connecticut. So we're within an hour from my perspective, you know, being a fourth grader, I was like, why are we going into the library to witness this? You know, I was kind of familiar with the Iraq, you know, the, the things that were going on in the Middle East, because I remembered my dad watching stuff about like the Persian Gulf War. So I sort of had a somewhat of a clue. I wasn't like clueless at that age. And I remember just feeling kind of perplexed, like why are they having us watch it? Because we were led into the library when the first tower was hit. And then we were, you know, in the library when the second tower hit so we all saw it live on camera or at least we're assumed to believe it was live i i was too young to to be able to you know even know what time that was but yeah then we went home and it always stuck with me at first i was sort of 
patriotically upset and then i realized no this was a much more you know detailed and, and criminal thing than what we've been told and i started to consider that it was an inside job and i even had a friend in in eighth grade who sent me or seventh grade who sent me loose change which i've now interviewed jason burmis so a little surreal there but yeah that film kind of was the first conspiracy documentary i ever saw and and yeah that was a, a visceral experience but what happened after that you know traffic jam you, you mentioned you know I don't know if this was just now or on a previous interview, me hearing you talk about this, but did you see the second plane or what we're led to believe was a plane hit the the building? No, all, all I saw was the building blow up and I was on the north side of it. So I, hmm. I didn't see a plane in either instance that day because according to the official story, flight 11 of American Airlines flew over my head while I was on West Side Highway with the top down. It flew over my head at 500 miles an hour and then smashed into that building. Wow. Well, that's the claim. And then the only evidence of that claim is the Nade brothers footage. And if you look recently, they did the official documentary for the CIA with all the living CIA directors. So I don't know if they were intelligence filmmakers back then, but they sure are now. Right. <laughs> so wow. I would question the authenticity and the nature of the original clip. But yeah. if you look at the original clip and you watch the frames of that plane in that video approaching the building, there's a flash that goes off before the fuselage hits and makes contact with the building right and it's in the footage it's in the cnn footage because back in the day like people went and got the the source footage i have the source footage i used to look at all this stuff so though even so there's like in order to have credible evidence i would say well there's like six different solid ways to identify united airlines flight 77 there's serial numbers on every part there's call sign there's transponder signature there's two black boxes there's all this stuff right you get any of this stuff from the scene that looks legit? No, here's an engine we say that came from the plane. But if you look at the frame before that, because there's lots of pictures of these things, it was set up on the street between two of the, what are they called? Scaffolds. There were scaffolds doing construction. So it goes from being set up neatly next to a garbage can to being put on the street, right? And you don't take a piece of evidence from the street and put it next to the two garbage cans. So the, the photos go one way. So when you look into these things, it just leads into more questions, not solid answers. Cause I would have liked to get solid answers a long time ago. But when you actually look at like the footage of the photographers who were from FEMA, you know, there was Kurt Sonnenfeld, like he had some pictures that showed some stuff that they didn't want people to see. And the next thing, you know, he had to flee to South America because he had a murder rap on him. Right. So like there's a lot of edges to the beginnings of the evidence and they don't want people actually looking for themselves. They want you to believe the narrative, the cartoon, right? The caricature, the thing the 9-11 commission report was supposed to convince you of stupid. Come on, <laughs> just read the 9-11 commission report. I didn't really start researching 9-11. I had a bunch of anomalies. I had personal experiences. I had anomalies. I had questions, but I wasn't like, like on it until July 22nd, 2004, when they published the 9-11 commission report, 445 days after they started the investigation. And then I was like, holy shit, they're not going to solve this thing. They're covering it up. There's a whole bunch of evidence that they didn't even put in here. And they had testimony. They would hide the testimony of the stuff that was like the real stuff. And they give you the baloney. I was like, this is just like what they did to Kennedy. And then I started getting into, okay, who are these people? They've been in power, obviously, and they have power. Who are they? What do they do? What's their goals? How do we stop them? All this good stuff. But it took me two more corporate jobs before I learned that lesson. And, you know, so I just, 
you know, okay, I'll, let me, my work ethic is don't think about the past, focus on your next thing. Okay. So let's go do this next thing. Right. And by 2003, I had enough experience in the corporations to know, like, I, that's not where I should be putting my time and becoming a whistleblower and then representing my myself in court against multi-billion dollar law firm and a multi-billion dollar company for several years. That took up a lot of time while I was researching at the same time, right? And then after that, I was not willing to go back into that infrastructure because I saw like there is no protection for whistleblowers. Even if you have evidence, incriminating evidence of the people themselves admitting they're doing it and it's legally admissible in court, you're not going to win. You're not going to win because the game is rigged. You know, the guy who I was suing, the guy who owns the company, he's a billion dollar billionaire ambassador to Ireland who was Dick Cheney's biggest financier. You think they're going to let anything happen to that guy? Wow. No matter what evidence I have, dude. So I didn't right. understand the level of the game I was playing. So I took a couple of years to take a step back. Like, oh, okay. And not just, not just that, you were up against uh, a law firm and correct me if I'm wrong, but you were up against a law firm that had also defended the government in the Iran-Contra affair. Am I correct? And, and the BCCI scandal. Wow. Like it's a laundry list of narco terrorism that the United States government has done. And then they call that law firm to defend them. And that law firm was made by JP Morgan and company. And I discovered that while I was up against them in court. So I'm in court. I'm reading this book back here, House of Morgan by Ron Chernow. And in there, in the bottom of a right hand page, it's like at this point, JP Morgan's white glove, white glove law firm of Davis Polk and Wardell would no longer entertain this corporate takeover, hostile takeover type of moves that they wanted to do. So that the people at Morgan sought out Joe Flom and the guys from Skadden Arps, Mar and Flom. And assembled like, hey, you know, here, we're going to start throwing you business, but it's all going to be kind of corporate gangsterism. And they're like, we're up for it. And they became the government's, at least this arm of the government's best buddy. So I had no idea that until I was in court with these guys already. And I was like, oh, shit. So, yeah, yeah. And I, it was a, it was a, I call it the million dollar education. <laughs> it cost me that commission check. But for the cost of that commission check, I learned so much about politics judicial economics you know what drives people actions praxeology all this great stuff and then i got to read all these great books because of that situation and that's the the knowledge aspect is invaluable universities can't give it to you like that so right i feel very blessed you know i've never looked at myself with like a, a victim mentality or a woe is me i've just felt like you do the right things you're in the right place at the right time and you work hard in between when it's not like that. Yeah. And that is, you know, autonomy in, in a, a summation of words. But I do I do want to get to that. But I do also want to say, like, the, just the name of that law firm should tip you off. I mean, I can't. I've heard you say that name. I mean, there's a series of names several different times. And I could not repeat it. It's like hearing a foreign language. It's like you're speaking yeah, Swahili. Yeah, Mar, there's another name in there too. There's another partner. In there. Yeah, they morphed over the years. They started out with three partners back in like the '50s, but now it's like they got a bunch. But if you read, like, I got a bunch of books on BCCI and Iran Contra and stuff, and it's like these are the lawyers who bail out the government when they get caught with their hand in the narco jar. Right, um, right, and it all goes deep these people are not there purely by coincidence and it's not just oh well government's always corrupt it seems that it's an old boys club right and one more step i would offer is that now that i'm thinking about it 
they went hard on me in court when they were doing the cross-examination because I had mentioned Elliot Spitzer in my project Constellation. It was the first piece of media I put out. It's the first podcast episode of 9-11 Synchronicity. So it has my whole story in there in detail. In there, I'm talking about Elliot Spitzer because he tried to investigate AIG and Marsha McLennan, and I had high hopes. And when that investigation happened, they blocked it by making uh, <clears throat> this guy, Michael Cherkaski, in charge of Marsha McLennan. And he's the guy who brought Spitzer into the game. So they blocked his move by like, we just brought your mentor in to be your opponent, right? So when I saw that, so anyway, they're going hard on me. And I'm like, why are they so hard on about like Spitzer? And I found that Elliot Spitzer's wife, Silda Wall Spitzer works at Skadden Arps. She's one of their employees, dude, right? So that's how like yanking on the tail of the line that I was because I, they, I ended up standing up for what I said about Spitzer because I was like, what's on the record is true. So what do you want me to do? You know, and they were trying to get me to feel bad about it. But at the end of the day, yeah, it's like nepotism and the old boys club. And it's a very close night, a closely knit group of people, just like Victoria Newland, who's the UN US ambassador type situation over in Ukraine. Her husband's Robert Kagan, who's one of the top neocons who wrote a book called of paradise and power America and the new world order. Right. So they're like, it's small group of people doing this to us. Yeah. In these cases. Yeah. And, and, as I mentioned before we started, you know, I'm researching Skull and Bones and, and that Ivy League network seems to be an essential sort of layer in the, the layering that they did before they started with their agenda. But this agenda goes way back. And I don't know if they expected this to happen, Richard Grove, but they created a, a badass forensic historian in you when this happened. Because, you know, not only have you put out several podcasts i mean grand theft world is is a a tour de force every episode is is multiple hours and you guys go through basically unprogramming people i think from the programming that they receive if they're tapped in or tuned in and unfortunately a lot of us are through family relationships or through our work or however we get through life it, it's not always easy to separate yourself from that stuff so autonomy seems to be a natural sort of balance to the forensic research that you do because i'm sure knowing all the things you know can be quite daunting and and will make you want to do something about it at least for yourself to protect yourself right well and that's the gist there's the tragedy of the situation then there's the hope but you got to learn about the tragedy first learn about the problem okay there's these people and they're trying to take away your freedom okay i get it now I don't know how much information you need to get to that point, but at that point where you're like, oh, I get it now. Okay. You got to take some actions. Let's, let's formulate some solutions. Mm. You know about permaculture or what are you doing with your rainwater? All these things that you might want to do to prepare for people not wanting you to have clean air, you know, fresh water, healthy food. What can you do? Can you have chickens in your backyard? Can you learn to up your skills and just bring in more money and pay other people to do these things you don't know how to do? There's a whole bunch of options to explore. But most people are like deer in the headlights and they're frozen. And then they see the gas prices going up and the food shelves and all this other stuff. It's like, okay, we might need to up our skills this year. Guess what? The skills of 2021 aren't going to make it in 2022 all the way to the end, right? We're going to have to level up. So what more value can you offer to the market or what skills can you get to be more valuable to other people who might want to hire you or give you a raise or help you start your business? And so there's all these tools, methods, resources, but they're not linked up with the people who really need them. 
And that's been a problem for a long time. And I read about the problem for a long time. All of John Taylor Gatto's work and Carol Quigley's work and Anthony Sutton's work and all Porter Sargent and all the other people, Charlotte Iserbeet, who have written about how they undermine our education to create schooling, which is just indoctrination. And it, do, it doesn't give you what you need to know to survive and thrive. It doesn't tell you how to right. be an entrepreneur or how to be an employee or an executive or a spouse leadership or accountability or integrity, or all the things that are lacking in our society. It so seems to get you in. Go ahead. If you've been, if they took that stuff out to break our society and make us slaves, what happens if we put that stuff back in and people start using these ideas, right? So I created an educational curriculum that addresses the, the major points that John Taylor Gatto pointed out, right? Some of the first things we do are help people learn to overcome the introversion, the learned helplessness, the scarcity mindset, the I can't mentality, the victim mentality, these things that hold us back from even taking action to try and fail, try and fail to eventually succeed. And how to overcome the fear of what happens when I try and you know fail? Are people going to mock me? Well, not, in, not if you're in a place with culture of excellence, people are going to applaud you. Good job. And next time, try this, right? We've, we've all been there and done that. So to create an educational arena where people can get in, get the curriculum, get the methods, strategies, tactics in 12 weeks, but also overcome their introversion, learn how to be a better speaker and introduce themselves to others and how to interview, interview others, right? All the like interactive dynamic skills that I teach the students that where they do workouts with each other an hour at a time. You know, you're going to interview this person for 30 minutes. Here's the, the method to do that. And then after that, you flip and you learn equal about the other person. And now they've got a more realistic, substantial, meaningful bond than they ever had if they went to school together or rode the bus together or met at a resort or at a conference or even worked together. You have better knowledge of your, your network in this case than most people have of their own family. Because you're learning about, hey, what brought you here? What's holding you back? What's your goals? What are the resources you have? What are the resources you don't have? Let me help you find, oh, I know this person that does this, right? All these magical things happen when you have people just starting taking action in this format, right? So anyway, I started offering it like three or four years ago at this point. We've graduated over 500 students. We're kicking off season eight in September. And right now there's like an early bird special going on for people to show up. You get $1,500 of free courses during the summer while you're waiting for autonomy season eight to start. And uh, it's been one of the most invigorating, rewarding, enthralling experiences that I've been through. And I know it does more for the students than it does for me because I hear them talk about it all the time. And they, their favorite parts of each other, the curriculum's great. The curriculum's solid. They're real skills you can apply in your life every day forever. But what they really value is meeting each other, meeting the others. There's other logical, reasonable people out there that are looking to be more self-reliant. And sometimes our families think they're crazy, but a lot of times they don't. A lot of times these days, people are coming around and they're like, hey, black sheep in the family, you know what? You were right. And uh, what else, you know, what else we need to know about these people? So my current project of, you know, autonomy, it runs twice a year. And I do that, you know, during the week. That's my full-time job, educating adults, because we, we help people between ages 18 and 85. 85 is our oldest student right now. And I also help Autonomy Unlimited, our marketing and consulting company. I help clients over there. So that's like 85% of my time in the week. And then 15% of my time, I, I go Grand Theft World, Sunday night live streams. And that's where I cover this week's current events, help to put them in historical context and point you toward my older bodies of work that help you get the details, learn, learn the who, what, where, when, why, and how of 
globalism or eugenics or cybernetics or all, you know, critical thinking being removed from schooling, all these different aspects were, we're under attack. It's a full spectrum attack. They're doing full spectrum dominance, but we can also use our intellect and our organization skills and be like, you know what, let's learn how they're doing it over here and let's mitigate. Now let's move on to the next section. Let's learn how they're doing it. Now let's mitigate and step-by-step you can cut these, these strings or threads that are holding us down. So it's like, we're Gulliver. These Lilliputians are holding us down with thousands of little rules and bureaucracies. But as you consciously, critically think and communicate and take some actions, you can start to snap those strings one at a time and get your freedom back. And so I work with people who actively, substantially, meaningfully want their freedom back. They want to expand their freedom. And I work with people who are like single moms with three kids and two jobs who don't have time or money to do this. And they do it anyway to seasoned entrepreneurs who've been running multiple multi-million dollar businesses for years. And they can all find value in the same curriculum and they can all find value from the people they talk to and interact with because it's a culture of excellence. It's a no excuses attitude. And these are people who are overcoming challenges rapidly and making change and learn in their life and learning how to write their own script, most importantly in life. Damn. Yeah, man. And you've told me much about this and, you know, I'm not afraid to, to say it. I think I've always lived a a sort of autonomous life, but even still, I'm sure I'd have a lot to gain from joining autonomy and a lot to learn. I know as a 27 year old man, my journey is just beginning, but I don't know. I, I gotta give, you know, a little tip of the hat because it is it is a tough thing to take control of i mean i'll say one thing that i resonate is this helping people understand how to speak confidently and comfortably this is something i appreciated for the first time as a, a college student in a communications class and the professor asked us to choose a topic of our choice each week and we would speak on it for 15 minutes on the on the little stage in front of the class so it's really sort of a free exercise in you know public speaking and everybody got a turn they would all would all talk about whatever we wanted and i appreciated the opportunity to talk about the weird things i was reading about at that age i eventually dropped out of college because I realized I was racking up debt and I was sort of in an environment that wasn't all that dissimilar to high school. And it just felt like, okay, this is not going to get me where I think I, I need to be. So I began a sort of a college of, of my own in the sense that I used the job opportunities that were in front of me to learn skills. And I continued growing and adding on to that skill set, the minimal skills that I gained from community college. And, you know, using delivery jobs, I was able to find podcasts uh, extremely valuable. You know, I had all this time. Long form content. You don't have to touch the buttons. Right. Audience too, right? Right. So I was just absorbing all of this stuff on all the various shows out there. And, and that's what eventually led me to where I'm at now in, you know, many different twists and turns, but yeah, I can, I can appreciate it. And I definitely have been relay or delaying the, the prospect, but I think I'm going to do it. I think you sold me after, after this conversation. Well, uh, I'm going to sell you on it. I'm just letting you know, like, no, that's just how I'm putting it. Options. I know, but like one of the, so 
in the course, I teach sales, but sales as I teach it is an art form where you're serving people by solving problems and addressing needs that they actually have. So there is no pushing, persuading, convincing, conniving, none of that BS that people think is sales, right? That's what people who don't know how to solve problems do to get the job done, right? They push and nag and all this stuff. I teach people to create a low pressure area. People are coming to you. I got problems being sent to me all day, every day. We turn away work. And my buddy the other day, he's like, you don't turn away work. That's bullshit. I said, no, we do turn away work because the only people who work at the, the marketing and consulting company are graduates of autonomy. So until I get more excellent people that want to actually work and do this, you know, because not everybody wants to work at the marketing and consulting company and be a freelancer. Some people have their own job or business or, you know, executive and they, they're doing their own thing. So we're still looking for talent. And as a result, we do turn away business. And we also turn away business that we know it's not going to work out because the other person's not going to do their half of it, right? So we've had a couple of clients where we do all our deliverables, but they still can't get us like the graphics or whatever's on their side that we need for that campaign, right? So we're in a growth stage, but uh, having a group of people at the consulting and marketing company who know each other, work and play, play well together, have a culture of excellence, know about integrity and accountability, and they can be a one-stop shop for our clients, that's a game changer. Because as an entrepreneur, I got this tech stack that I need to make my business run, right? And now I have to go to the internet, find random people who won't talk to each other. They're all going to charge me the highest rate, and I'm probably not going to get what I paid for. And then I'm going to go out of business. And that's expensive. Whereas our clients, they come once a week and we have a meeting with all hands on deck and all their needs get met and we go back to work and we come back and give them another report the next week, right? And uh, so that's separate from the training program. That's like an actual business for small businesses in the freedom community. It's usually our customers, but the, the training course, yeah, I, I did as much as I could to make it all transparent so that you see the whole thing once on the other side of the paywall before you even pull out your credit card. So it's completely transparent. I do a obstacle course to weed out people who aren't going to make it through my course. If you can't make it through the obstacle course, you wouldn't make it through one lecture of the autonomy course. It's a very aggressive course. I've got students who have graduated seven times and they keep coming back for more because you can keep learning from it. You can't absorb it all in one season. It's dense. It's like trying to drink through a straw from a tsunami. It's in your face, but you have lifetime enrollment. So they just keep coming back and each season we have more fun. And yeah, that's, that's the gist of it. Right on. In the light direction. Right on. Yeah. No, over time, you know, as I've gotten to know you more and more, I've also met autonomy graduates, alumni, if you will. And I I've had three dozen last year in New Hampshire when you were up there with us. Oh yeah. And, and I've had a few on the podcast, I think off the top of my head, maybe Daryl Becker rings a bell. Probably Benny Wills. Have you got yeah, Daryl's a graduate? Benny Wills. Uh, Benny Wills has been on Bush. tinfoil hat. Not, not this show, Derek but bros. Derek, I've spoken to on the Freethinker Society. Yeah. So I've definitely been impressed by the group of people. I have students that are, you know, influencers, semi-famous type of people. Like the person I voted for for president in 2004, libertarian president for these United States, Michael Badnarik, years later ends up in autonomy season one because one of his friends was in there. He's like, you know who could use this? I was like, who? He's like, Michael Badnarik. I was like, do you know him? He's like, yeah. I said, how well? He's like, he slept at my house before. I said, well, then get him in here. And uh, Michael had a constitution course. So the first thing we did for him was productize that by letting him present to the students. And we captured that, made him an online course that he now sells on badneric.org. 
I think is his site. And he's in a hospital right now. If you're looking for knowing your rights and getting a course on that for yourself, for your family, for your, you know, family library, for your kids, Michael Badnerick's the, the, the paramount teacher in that area. And so it's either michaelbadnerick.org or badnerick, B-A-D-N-A-R-I-K.org. Right on. Yeah. So grandtheftworld.com is uh, not just our Sunday night, six hour podcast dissecting the week, but it's also the one page I can go to, to see all the people I want to see. So with everyone getting banned from YouTube and these sort of things, I was like, I want to send myself and my listeners, like, here's one page. You can see Tim pool. You can see Luke Rudowski. You can see James Corbett. You can see Tim Dillon. You can see all the people that are like speaking truth to power. Some of the, most of the people on Grand Theft World, I've either know personally, or I've worked with them over the years, or I just admire their work. And we promote their work regularly on Grand Theft World. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. Well, that explains my misunderstanding. So I want to go back to what we were just discussing after, you know, 2004, obviously you started researching 9-11, you put your work together. Yeah, close that loop. I close that loop. In 2003, I became a federal whistleblower under the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, which was a law mandated by Congress in 2002 that would prevent accounting scandals from going on in these big corporations like Tyco, Consult Tyco International, Anderson Consulting, Enron, all these big financial fiascos, right? So they made this law. I was selling software to say, here's the thing that protects you from that happening at this company. And oh, by the way, Congress said you had to buy it, right? So it was a good gig. And then I found out because one of my clients was Tyco International. One of the clients like in an investigation was on my sheet, right? So I got to find out from the inside. They're not interested in following the rules. They wanted to know how to delete the data and make sure, make it look like it was never there. And that's the chief lawyer for Tyco International, a woman named Bally Baudasano. And she's like, we cooked the books for such and such other, like it was a Pfizer pharmacy merger she had just done, right? So she made it known she wasn't looking to follow the SEC mandate and all this stuff. She was looking to violate it. I was a little taken aback. I think that meeting was like July 8th, 2003, right? So time frame. Next month, August, I'm down in Maryland at the National Association of Securities Dealers. These are the watchdogs of the stock market. And I say, you know, Sarbanes-Oxley, and they say, let's see it. And I show it to them, and they're like, this has a back door in it. And the guy gave me enough detail that I wrote it up. And I told my management, I'm like, hey, the client says he wouldn't buy this product because it, it does the opposite of what it's supposed to do. And it looks intentional, right? And from there, I kept getting ever-increasing resistance to the point where I had to call the SEC, Securities and Exchange Commission, who was already investigating my company. And I called the lawyer in San Francisco. His name was Kevin. And I said, hey, you're already investigating my company, a different division, but I'm in this, you know, I'm in this New York division. And here's what I see going on over here. It's very similar to what you guys are already investigating. What should I do? And he says, you know, we could put you in prison for talking about that outside the company. And I was like, get the fuck out of here. You're like, it's like, he's like, he's there to protect the fraud or to whatever, man. But like being a whistle. So anyway, I blew the whistle officially a couple of days after that. And I write an email to the top attorney in my company and the guy who's in charge of HR, just like it says in the policy to be a whistleblower. Here's the steps. I follow the steps. I find out in court, like four years later that that day they decided to terminate me. As soon as I sent that email, the guy I sent the email to the, the top lawyer wrote an email and said, fire this guy. 
Now, it took me years to prove that in court, but that's a federal violation of a Whistleblower Protection Act that should put that guy in jail for five, prison for five years. But instead, there's no protection. It's an early warning system, so these guys can cover it up. So they can so they can prepare a legal defense to to defend their actions, right? Then it's it's not it's not a justice system. So anyway, after going through that federal whistleblowing process and putting myself through court over those years, right? So I had a multi million dollar career ahead of me until I was a whistleblower, and then after that, you're not going to get hired by a sales organization because they want the big clients, right? And if I can't call Hewlett Packard or Microsoft because they they might Google me and see I said some stuff about them or something, you know. So anyway, I had, to, I had to blaze my own trail. I was no longer welcome on the superhighway. And I found myself whacking through the branches of all these books that talked about there's something going on. Like even Woodrow Wilson in 1911. And I didn't believe this. So I got his first edition book of this. He's like, there's a, a concentrated power so, so like dangerous that men won't speak above their breaths about it. Right. And so it was like going through these experiences combined with my incredulity, because I have a college degree. But of course, if Woodrow Wilson said something like that, they would have told me. And it being incredulous, like I read it on the internet, but that can't be true. So let me invest $300 and get the first edition of the book. Oh, shit. It says that over eight pages. It's not like a mistake. It's not a typo. This is like, there's real stuff going on and they have hidden it from you, your family, everyone, you know, since you've been born. And yet it's real, it's ongoing, it's shaping world events. Right now, as we talk, it's going on. So I felt like the faster and more I could learn about this oppositional force, the more I could get my freedom back. Right. I felt like I lost my freedom because I was naive and underprepared and undereducated for the situations I found myself in. And then I took some actions for several years to make sure that doesn't happen again too right. easily. Right. Yeah. And, you know, it seems like, as you were saying earlier, with the dumbing down of the American education, it sort of works twofold, like a filter system. These secret societies are in place within the university system to collect the elite and the connected people or maybe the bright and bold who they think they can use. And then the rest just sort of get stupefied in the, you know, grist mill that is college and, and have all this debt and, and they end up hitting that ceiling that we described earlier, that, you know, integrity ceiling. And I think there are a lot of well-meaning people that graduate from college, but realize, you know, hey, I, I have a lot to sacrifice and it might be easier to just swallow this. And, you know, it takes a lot of bravery to do what you've done and, you know, hold your integrity to such a high degree and maintain it. And then also take that lone route the lone wolf route so to speak at first and and you know instead of remaining a lone wolf creating a community where others can be risen to this same level of autonomy but you know given you've researched so much i'd love to ask you a few more questions i know we don't have that much time but you researched so much about 9-11 and one of the most interesting takes i've heard and there's so many different takes on 9-11 but one of the most interesting takes I've ever heard is from a man named Jose Arguelles. And he talks about 9-11 being this sort of inevitable event that was predetermined to happen on the causal plane. And, and it could have manifested in, you know, a different type of disaster, but the elite, whoever they may be, you know, 
use their sorcery to make it happen there and then and how much you know ear time do you well, give to theories nice. like that it's like a nice story right there's right a book called the most dangerous book in the world right so there's these theories out there but at the end of the day if that was not if if that's how things worked then cia wouldn't have to go to some saudi drug runners get them all coked up at the strip clubs and then put them on those planes that morning because that's who the hijackers were like if you watch dennis hopsicker's venice flying circus and you see like who is Mohammed Atta? what was he doing for the year before 9-11 right are these Muslim extremists who are going to kill themselves and, you know, it's for Allah, or are they look more like Saudi guys that were training to fly drugs for the kingdom because they got diplomatic immunity over there in that kingdom that British, uh, the Britain's British create created artificially. Right. So the Saudi Royals are created in the 1930s because the British Royals can make other Royal families. Right. So there's a whole history to these events. Right. So that you wouldn't need proxy armies of, of Muslim Brotherhood, Mujahideen, Al-Qaeda, ISIS for the last hundred years if the, like the cosmos is just going to do this, right? They take too many tax dollars to do too many corrupt things to be that this is divinely you know, oriented, right? You, what you have is a small group of corrupt people who have learned methods of Machiavellian control over time, and they practice them against unwitting, unprepared people. And I'm saying, I'd like to see what the game would look like if people were prepared, if they were witting, if they were informed and they had the resources, methods, tools, and principles that free people used to have in this country prior to the 20th century Anglification of America, where American freedom was sacrificed to become a world player like the British Empire, to be the British's property managers for their empire around the world. So there's a lot of history to break that open, to flesh it all out. But I only learned all these things from the individual artifacts and what they add up to, not because of some narrative. And as far as 9-11, I don't have a narrative or a conclusion on it. I'm still, I have more questions today and I haven't seen too many answers or pieces of evidence that explain them away. Mm. Yeah. And, and I am curious because so many people have what seems to be, at least when checked with your perspective, an ungrounded perspective that's, you know, dashed with the occult and these, you know, fantasies of sorcerers in boardrooms thing, but why are secret societies there mm -hmm. because knowledge of self is is useful to an individual it's very powerful for an individual it makes you upwardly mobile and like an unstoppable force so what if we don't give everyone knowledge of self what if we make you go through some hoops and you can only get knowledge of self over here in this pythagorean secret society or this eleusinian secret society right they'll take you through the rites of passage of ego death and moksha and these various elements that have been taught for thousands of years right uh -huh. death and rebirth it's it's this whole thing but right. they had a monopoly on it right so like the 20th century where they're like oh go experiment with some psilocybin or some lsd or whatever and then people start figuring stuff out on their own so this is one of the first times in recent history that people have had a chance to com have communication union with their own creator and commune with their spirit without an intermediary mm. so i just take it to the next logical extension of, of what the protestants did with martin luther He's like, there shouldn't be anyone between a man and his God. They shouldn't have this uh, Pope or a priest or whatever. Like a man should be able to read the scripture and commune with God. And there's sacraments in there and there's Canabossum and there's entheogens. There's a whole bunch of interesting things in all these religious texts, but they're not going to get it through the intermediaries because those intermediaries gain power by not, by denying you knowledge of self. And it's not like they can give it to you anyway, but they, they take away the tools that other people have used for centuries to get to those levels. Right. They monopolized.
right? So you got to take a secret society oath to get to that knowledge level. But yeah, it's knowledge of self and you can gain that if you have a method of learn how to learn anything can get you there. That's just a three-step method. I teach it. In fact, you can get all that stuff for free on, on the websites that I have. It's like a lead magnet. Mm, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, thinking trifecta on tragedyandhope.com probably is where that's at. Yeah. And I will include all that stuff in the description and I'll be sure to check it out myself. I, I'm loving what you're saying about this monopoly on the secret societies, because that does seem to be exactly what's gone down here during the colonial history where the Native Americans had their own secret societies. They had their own you know, entire culture with quests and sweat lodges, right. buttons and all sorts of stuff for sure. Well, and what you said about what you said about that reminded me of peyote because I heard recently that peyote has only been used in a ceremonial and medicinal purpose for a relatively short amount of time in the scope of history. And my thought is when this monopoly over the the you know north american continent was fully secured peyote sort of emerged in this spiritual causal plane way to remedy those tragedies that I mean, occurred i mean this is all speculation spanish of course doors spanish conquistadors encountered native americans mm -hmm. who were using psychedelic sacraments and they called it san pedro because saint peter is the rock that the church is built upon the rock that the church is built upon is psychedelics. Mm, right. And, th and then when you encounter, this is their St. Peter, this is their rock. They're using, you know, this or down in South America, they're using ayahuasca. And how did they get ayahuasca? Well, the plants told them how to make it. Right. Right. Cause ayahuasca is two plants combined together. And why I'll explain it in a second, but the reason that you have to combine these two plants together is because if you ingest just the, the DMT part of it, your biome and your stomach will break it down. But if you take it with a MAOI inhibitor type situation, then it'll pass through and then you can have the experience. Oh yeah. So, oh yeah. Ayahuasca, we, we've had uh, ayahuasqueros on the show and, and we've gotten into that subject yeah. intimately, but yeah, I, I do so sort the, of. The DMT parts in the psychotria viridis, but the Benisteriopsis capi vine is what you need to mm. get the, the milky substance that allows the the psychotria viridis to go to work in your body, I believe. Right. Right. Yeah. That, that definitely sounds like what I've heard before, but I'm no expert on that subject. Of, there is Terrence McKenna had a, a, a farm in Hawaii and on that farm, they grew some vines and ferns that would make that up. And a while back I was with some people in Texas and they had some of that from there. So I have had a taste of that and got to see some of that. The ants carry cutter ants carry leaves through the woods for miles. It was a good experience. <laughs> wow. But yeah, so I didn't go to South America, but it did find me once upon a time. And yeah, it was interesting. Yeah. No, and and I don't I don't want to be like a nitpicker or anything, but I do think San Pedro and peyote are, are different plants. I could be wrong, but I'm just trying to stick along the lines uh, of San Pedro is a type of cactus, and cactus produces the peyote buttons. Mm. Which is the hallucinogenic part. Right. Well, so I think you're there. I stand corrected. <laughs> but either way, I do. Yeah, I'm just sort of speculating. It's something that I wondered about because we have this strong 
plant medicine relationship within the Native American culture. And then who comes along with their anthropology departments and their museums and sort of destroys the mounds and takes the artifacts, but the same organizations that now have very highly esteemed medical organizations, Yale, Harvard, you know, they're also known for their big medical campuses. Harvard's got a lot yeah, of it. It's funded by East India Company Opium. Mm -hmm. Right, right. So, yeah. Look at the origin of these institutions that people worship today. It's like, oh, that's the Opium Syndicate's training school. Right. Okay. Right. Harvard's the same thing. Oh, and what is the Ivy League? Those are the British colonies, colleges. So Rutgers, Columbia, Penn, you know, William and Mary, the Ivy League, Princeton, Prince who, right? Columbia is King's College. Rutgers is Queens College, right? I'm pretty sure that it's like the Royal Colleges that right. were still here and never went away. Right. So there are educate like university type elements that reflect the British Empire and never changed, even though we fought a revolution to kind of get get free of that group. Right. Right. And I'm I'm showing you now this presentation, a little bit of it that I put together. And this guy that you mentioned, Eli Yale, who was the main sort of a funder of the original Yale College, he was connected through blood to Cambridge, Oxford, and Harvard. Theophilus Eaton, one of the founders of the New Haven Colony, which at the time was the wealthiest colony to be founded at that date. And he was also related by blood to the first headmaster at Harvard. So ever since the beginning, Yale and Harvard have had this relationship. And then I've even found in Eli Yale, a connection that goes all the way back to these people who invaded the British Isles, the Normans. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And, and even the Gherardini family, which is an Italian nobility family that has a connection to the Mona Lisa. That's no, good work. So I'm just sort of piecing things together. It's cool to be able to show you that, Richard, because I know, you know, not only are you a forensic historian, but you're a cinematographer and you've put this information together in not this specific information, but the research you've done in a visual graphic sort of way with your podcast to show people in depth and give people a, a higher sort of value learning experience. Yeah, we try to give people a higher level of understanding, right. higher education. However you want to think of it, it's higher. Well, and as a, a cinematographer, I, I want to ask you, you know, what advice do you have for someone like myself in this position where I have a sort of an interesting subject, something that a lot of people probably already have thoughts about and know about. We're trying to bring an angle to it that others may have not heard before. And the goal is to put the audio podcast out in conjunction with a video documentary. But do you have any advice for uh, someone like myself putting a, a project find, together like go, this? Go find some of your favorite doctor documentaries that use cinematography, learn what done right looks like, and then mimic that using whatever is around, right? You don't need a $5,000 gimbal for a $10,000 camera when you could use an iPhone and a $100 gimbal, it's going to look the same to the untrained eye, which is most of the audience, right? Like I can tell the difference between a slider, a gimbal, a dolly, a crane, you know, moving the camera, but like you fake it till you make it and you don't need the best equipment to get started. And what holds people back is not trying and just getting used to like, everyone's got a 
camera in their pocket that's better than anything I started with, right? So learn, you know, how to block out your shots, which is like, if you're introducing a subject, you want an establishing shot, and then you come in a little bit closer and do maybe a mid shot, and then you do a close up for emphasis, and then you go back to your mid shot. So there's going to be a cadence and flow to your edits. And those are the shots that make up your film. And now you reverse engineer and you go back and say, okay, we need the establishing shot. When we get there, we need these shots. We need these three camera angles. We need two layers of audio just in case. And you get a list. I mean, it's all, it all sounds like rocket science the first time, but once you start doing it, you're like, oh, there's a list. There's the things we do. This is how they make TV every day and stuff like that. It's not, you know, it's doable to make media, to communicate your own thoughts, your own feelings, your own knowledge to other people in a way that's useful to them, meaningful to them, empowering and invigorating to them. I think it's one of the best things we can do with our time is learn how to do those skills. And they could have taught us this during school, but they don't want you being empowered and writing your own script in life. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I took a, I took a, a television production class in high school and uh, probably the most interesting class I ever took, I ended up creating myself and starring in a film with my friends from the wrestling team. It was called the Kung Fu Champion Enters the Temple of Torment. And we used an abandoned building, which I'm sure you've seen around Connecticut. There's plenty of them. We used an abandoned building as our film set. And recently I went back and put some new music on it and uploaded it to Rockfin so people can check that out on Rockfin. And I was reminded of it because you mentioned dollies. And I remember we used a shopping cart as a dolly and I had my friend sit in the shopping cart to get this one shot that just looked See? terrible because it was a shopping cart on asphalt, but it was, yeah. it was fun. <laughs> yeah. You could sit on a pillow and smooth that out. I was just explaining to a client who was here and I was like, look, people used to use, you know, they didn't have a dolly. So they used a wheelchair, a wagon, a shopping cart, anything with wheels you could use and kind of, you know, people would ride on the tailgate to get a smooth shot and fake it to you. Like you don't have the money to buy the expensive equipment. What does the shot look like? Oh, it goes up and down. It's a $12,000 crane. I can do that with my arm and stand on the back bed of the pickup truck. Look at that. I got the establishing shot right there. You know, So there's a whole bunch of things you can learn to do, but the gist is learn how to do anything. And then you can learn how to make a goal. And then you learn how to do the steps to get to the goal by applying that same three-step method of how to learn anything. Mm. And if you want to learn more, because I got to jump, I got a seven o'clock. If you want to learn more, get autonomy.info forward slash ignite and then you just click the button and complete the obstacle course you'll learn more during that than you did probably during elementary school mm. it's pretty useful stuff and you can get transparency on how to get all the skills that i've talked about or used throughout my career still used today very useful these days these skills are and if the economy goes sideways or we're hit by an emp you're still going to need these skills how to observe, how to think, how to solve problems, how to communicate with others, how to plan actions and get things done, how to be accountable and move forward. These are the basic skills of human beingness. And then we have a bunch of high value skills. Like I said, sales and marketing and the tech stack of entrepreneurism, all that other stuff comes with it. And it's lifetime enrollment. So it's an offer people can't refuse. They just, not many people know about it. And we like to keep the classes small. So everyone has good personal interactions. So I like to keep less than hundred people per season in the course. And so there's only so many seats open and they, they're, they're open for business now because we just ended our special last night for the, the replay from last season. Get autonomy.info forward slash ignite. And if that's not for you, you could try grandtheftworld.com for our Sunday night podcast. 
or you can get uh, the Freedom Vault. Get a bunch of my stuff for free and just get introduced to my work. That's at getautonomy.info forward slash Freedom Vault, all one word, Freedom Vault. Rock on. Yeah, and he's on Rockfin, folks. You could ride the bull that is Grand Theft World, as Richard likes to say. Big That's long, funny. yeah. Riding, you know, ma- watching Grand Theft World is like riding a bull. Not everyone makes it to the end. <laughs> those who do who are, are champions. Yes, yes, definitely. I heard you say that before, and I know the feeling. I've tuned in on Rockfin before. Yeah. Oh yeah, I've been kicked off. I try to tune in live sometimes, and and yeah. But either way, this has been a real fun conversation. Richard Grove, autonomy. Please, folks, follow up and have a great moment wherever you are in the now. All right, and that is our conversation with Richard Grove. Find out more about Autonomy at getautonomy.info. It's a great asset for you in your life. Autonomy can be what you need if you're out there and you're like, geez, my family thinks I'm crazy. What am I going to do? Autonomy would probably be a great addition to anyone's life. Um, I recommend that you do so. Go check it out get autonomy.info big shout out to richard for joining us for this episode sharing his story i remember when 9 11 happened i was like i said in this episode i was only in second grade third grade you know it's just it's a really interesting how big of an impact that single event has had on our country it's something that it's profound I mean and now it feels like <clears throat> we're off and on to World War 3 nobody's even looking back we're about to have our 21st anniversary from 9-11 this coming month so moment of remembrance for all the lives lost and a moment of silence for them moment of silence for the truth and a prayer from me and everyone listening that the truth will be shown into the light and this sort of evil will never be perpetuated against us ever again thank you for listening folks and enjoy the moment wherever you are in the now
knowledge feeling deeper than the ocean it's the eightfold path in the sacred lotus uh, i'm peeking flipping through akashic records my ego's decomposing like a leper i'm mega casey going some levitation so with zero hesitation as i jump into the spaceship i'm weary from thinking like an earthling while skyfish dip and dive above the earth circling I'm spiraling, sacred geometry Studying my old selves like it's anthropology Honestly, feeling like life's a comedy As big a game as a paper-run economy I've been playing safe, but safest for the weak or hard way I'm peeking, tearing everything apart Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain Cells out of service can't reach me on the circuit uh, I'm peeking through the curtain Nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose Wait But I feel it like a purpose Wait, I'm beta testing old theta frequencies I lay to rest the ego and the frequent themes That keep me seeing life inside a box Small minds, kick rocks, Pandora, let's talk uh, I might need a suture for this rift in space I might stay and see how Lucifer's fruit tastes I'm hungry for knowledge and hungry for infinite And every time I'm peeking I can see it for an instant I'm peeking through the curtain at the crowd Sheeps in their seats and the wolves on the prowl Zeitgeist, spirit form, walking through the aisles Consumerism living in their vacant smiles uh, Now I'm peeking through the curtain at the sky I ain't even gotta try, gaining wisdom on the fly I'm touching base with things I can't explain Gods without names on a different plane Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain Cells out of service can't reach me on the circuit But I feel it like a purpose Wait I'm peeking through the curtain Hardly feeling like a person But the vibes are perfect uh, I'm peeking through the curtain Nothing is for certain But I feel it like a purpose Wait I'm peeking through the curtain Cells out of service Can't reach me on the circuit uh, I'm peeking through the curtain Nothing is for certain But I feel it like a purpose Wait Certain, but I feel it like a purpose. Wait, wait, wait.